Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, 2018, son. I know, it's 2018. Thanks for joining us again on this show this week. My name is Samantha Nzessi. Yo, my name is Ramoy George Philip I. And this is Masculinity. So listen, everybody, welcome back. Uh, the holidays were awesome, um, and I'm just happy to be yeah, back. awesome for some who are in Hawaii, but that's fine. Hawaii, you guys, if you haven't been to Honolulu, I just need you to do what you got to do to get there. It's amazing. Why doesn't everybody spend their Christmas on Hawaii? Why Listen, don't they? I mean, I, I don't know what I've been doing up until now. But anyway, yeah, so, I mean, Hawaii was amazing. Life was amazing. Ramoy, how have you been? How was your uh, winter galore? How, how have I been? Sense. Yes. <laughs> Well, I wasn't in Hawaii. I was <laughs> in New York City where it was frozen and I was angrily frozen. Uh, and, yo, for all you fucking New Yorkers out there who say this is normal and that was everyday kind of winter cold bullshit, I got a fucking spreadsheet that says otherwise. Uh, it was colder than cold. And uh, that's what I did. Well, I was checking temperatures while I was in California and Hawaii. And I was like, Why don't you say Damn. Hawaii one more time? <laughs> I mean, you know. I, I didn't mean it like that. I just meant, yeah. I mean, I, it was like I was like I gotta get my bicoastal plan together. I can't be doing this. Ooh, like, I can't wait to be bicoastal. Yeah, that's what I was like. I gotta see what I'm gonna do, whatever. But you know, all in all, honestly, it's really nice to be back in New York. Um, as soon as I got back, you know, I was like taking my luggage into like the elevator or whatever, and the elevator smelled like pee. I felt like I was back home. So, um, yeah, besides that, not enough basketball. I did my usual NBA Christmas, and then I was really sick, so I didn't really get to do a whole lot. Yo, Steph Curry, we need your ankles to be better, man, because basketball is just a lot more fun to watch, even though it's been a good season for everybody. Uh, we need Steph Curry's ankles to be just healthy and well. I know. I mean, I do need to be watching a lot of basketball. But here's the thing, though. I think a lot of people are still hating on Kyrie, and I just want to come out in the forefront and say that I'm happy with Kyrie. You know what I'm saying? I'm happy so with So you're a flat earther, too, is what you're saying. I'm, I'm a what? You're a flat earther. What does that mean? I don't even know what that. Oh, oh my God! Because he said, "No, no, 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 Kyrie." It's you on his shoes now. You gotta stop it's on his shit. shoes. Really? Yeah. Okay. See, this is what happens when you start to root for someone, and then they do stuff like this, and you're just like, "But why?" Anyway, um, one thing that happened though is that on the plane, I did see a movie called Wilson with uh, Woody Harrelson. Oh, uh, that's with the angry dad. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Have you seen that? Yeah, it's dark as shit. Dude, but it's so good. Actually, I feel like it has a lot to do with kind of like the things that we're talking about here. And I mean, that's, it was interesting because like reading, you know, Angry White Men by Dr. Michael Kimmel, who will be here in a minute, um, like at the same time as like watching this, it was actually very illuminating because I did feel like a little bit of, he just wanted human connection, right? And he, it was like impossible for him to get that until he went, oh, spoiler alert, until he went to prison. You know, and so I just thought that it was really interesting. If you guys haven't seen it, watch it and then listen to our show. Wink, wink. Well, I mean, that's a that's a perfect segue. Yes. Because today is a special episode, especially for Samantha, because she's giddy right I'm now. I'm pretty juiced. Uh, it's the new year, right? But it's the, also the first episode of uh, Masculinity in 2018. That's right. And we are grateful to be here to just really have this conversation about how we got to such a gendered space and a gendered country and a gendered civilization as a whole, it feels like. Yeah. Uh, but most importantly, we're here to uncover the impact on men living in a male-dominated society and how expectations and privilege devolve into really an unfavorable situation for all of us. Uh, this is really about kind of exposing this system for what it is, 
painting a picture of what systematic patriarchy looks like because it's looking like it's not all that beneficial to men at all. It's also about exposing those kind of norms uh, that we abide by day after day and empowering ourselves and each other to do you know, something about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that we're very invest- invested in, and it's one of the main reasons we're choosing to have this conversation through a podcast rather than some other platform, is really having these conversations about men and masculinity be accessible. These days, we've had the opportunity to blow the lid off in terms of sexual harassment with the Harvey Weinsteins and the Chuck Closes and the Matt Lowers. He had a button on his desk, right? What? He had a button on his desk to lock the door and like keep people in there, particularly like women. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. We don't have to. We don't have to. <laughs> what? Just okay. I'm sorry. Let me just bring myself back. Okay. All right. Thank you for sharing that bit of really disturbing um, news. That's crazy. Okay. Um, and so this, so Matt Lauer's button on the desk. Okay, great. There's still this understanding that this dynamic is only attributed to super powerful guys who will have things like having buttons on their desk to lock people in offices. Okay. You know, and that regular dudes aren't really in a position to display such behavior. And I feel like that really undermines the pervasiveness of some of the system. And you're right because a lot of times we kind of project and say, oh, this is a bigger, this is for other, this is everybody else's problem. Right. This is yeah. the people who are in power. These mm-hmm. are the, whether it's the politicians or the celebrities or the bankers, the, just the men who have the power. They're the evil ones, right? Yeah. But what we need to be looking at here is to talk about how to have conversations with all of us, everyday people, mm-hmm. men, women, trans, children, young adults, all of us, and how to focus on these incidents, how they're not just a result of men in ultimate power, but really how it's inherently taught uh, by our educational systems and our social systems and how we interact with the TV and ourselves, how we have our conversations. You know, with that focus, we can get uh, into how to have these conversations about gender with people who simply haven't thought about it before and just may not see it. So with that in mind, we have a very special guest today that Samantha is very excited about. I'm super excited, guys. It's very excited for me because I... I remember reading the New York Times article about the master's degree from the me- the Center of Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook University, and that article was actually written in 2015, but it wasn't really until I went and started looking for answers, you know, after the whole Brock Turner fiasco that I found it, and I really felt like what was being talked about in the article about what it means to be a real man versus what it means to be a good man, and all of that really kind of echoed some of the things that I had been subconsciously been thinking about. So. It's really our honor and privilege to have Dr. Kimmel here today to help us navigate how to talk about masculinity. Dr. Michael Kimmel is a renowned sociologist and the founder of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook University and has written a plethora of books on topics related to men and masculinities, including Manhood in America, Guyland, Angry White Men, which I, we just both finished. Um, and you've spoken at conferences all over the world and been an expert panelist discussing gender in terms of everything from politics to marketing. And so um, we're really thrilled to have you here today. Uh, your um, TED talk about how gender equality is good for everyone was a big, big um, determinant factor for uh, me having the idea to start the podcast. So thank you for being here. Yep. Uh, before we go any further, uh, 
so everybody can know, like, so you've done incredible work. You're a professor, and you uh, you are over at Stony Brook, and you've talked over the world. But you're from Strong Island, right? Like, you're from Long Island. You're from middle-class, white America. Yeah, I am a Brooklyn boy. Oh. I was born in Brooklyn, started my life in Brooklyn, and this is uh, this was only be of interest to people of a certain age. The day the Dodge, I went to Ebbets Field. Ooh. The day the Dodgers announced that the that they were leaving for LA was Shitty the first Angeles. time I ever saw my father cry. Wow. And wow. he said, Brooklyn is over. <laughs> Four, wait, wait, it gets better. Four months later, we were living on Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> it had officially he, ended. It, it's over. It was over. And he never watched a baseball game again. Wow. Yeah, it broke his heart. And oh. I think, you know, when I tell that story to, to men in their 80s, uh, 70s, 80s in, in New York City. I'm sure uh, they relate. Brooklyn, they completely relate. They get it. Yeah. Brooklyn was over. Yeah. Well, I mean, to speak there, whether it's it's the Brooklyn Dodgers or sports or your father. And I, I, again, the reason I bring that up is like, this isn't, you're coming from like an outside speaking in. You come from an insider's perspective. Right. Like a lot of this stuff, when it's the gender criticism, whether it's talking about masculinity and it's problematic nature, like you're coming from a place where you, this was in your home, in I, your I, neighborhood, I, yeah, the, and and I I think that there's two things two two things to that to, to my identity that's important, um, because uh, I don't come from a quickly easily identifiable marginalized position, which is to say, you know, I'm cisgender, heterosexual, white man, uh, middle class in uh, professional in the United States. I mean, they don't get more privileged <laughs> than that, right? So, well, so, yeah. on the, that, so on the one hand, that so so my point of entry is as one of the superordinate, not one of the subordinate, and right. I think that's that's important. The second thing, though, is that I think every one of us enters these conversations about inequality from the one place, if there is just one, where we feel marginalized. Sure, that's very true. I think our identity is very often where we feel like we don't fit in. So yeah. for me, growing up. In the 1950s, in Brooklyn, in the first generation after the Holocaust, that was that was my Judaism. Right. The the butcher on the corner had a tattoo. You know, the guy who delivered our milk had a tattoo. Right. And so I feel that um, that was my point of entry. You know, and and I think it's important that we think about that every one of us has a place where we don't feel like we don't fit in. That should be the grounds for our coalitions. Sure, that should be our our. Uh, our input, our root system for empathy. Right, that's like, right. I mean, and you speak speaking to that, like in this book, in Angry White Men that we just recently read, you speak about how Oprah and how every one of her first guests or initial guests were like always the victim and you had to find mm -hmm. the victim. And that's kind of what you're speaking to. Everybody speaks from their victim or their place of feeling like the victim. You know, I and I don't want to, I, I don't want to go there so fast, but I think in, you know, just as a footnote, sure. that's one of the things that resonated so strongly throughout white suburban and rural America about Trump is here is a guy who proclaimed himself to be one of the richest, most powerful, most brilliant, most athletic recently uh, men who've ever, <laughs> who's ever lived. And yet he says, we're, we're victims. We're victims, and sure. and he he captured that sense of victimhood among his base, yeah. sure, um, in a way that nobody was expressing it. You know, and that I, I mean. If there's a genius to this madness, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfect segue, actually, to this notion that, you know, of aggrieved entitlement, right? It's like, 
there there's actually I wondered if you you probably have the better words to, to describe it but this notion of there's something that belongs to us that now is being taken away that we have to reclaim by any means necessary right. and then that's where the division comes in and that's where kind of like the divide and conquer of Donald Trump is able to thrive so so this idea of in, aggrieved entitlement came came from trying to understand the experience the feelings of America's angry white men where whether it's the the angry white boys i said there's a chapter on school shooters uh angry white yeah. dads mm-hmm. there's an, a chapter on father rights movement there's a chapter on the men's rights movement and the last chapter is about neo-nazis white supremacists and white nationalists and the thing that i think unifies those groups is this sense of what i call the grieved entitlement so start with the noun first the entitlement um that i think is a sense that these guys believe that something has been taken from them something that was rightfully theirs. And here's how, um, so, so I have two anecdotes that I can think can give you an image of this. One is the, my first encounter with what I came to call angry white men um, on a TV talk show some years ago um, uh, with four white men who believed that they were the victims of reverse oh. discrimination in the workplace. Now, what's interesting about this story, in parentheses, I will just say, I don't know if you saw this most recent survey that showed that more white, a higher percentage of white people believe that they have experienced racial discrimination yeah. than black people. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing, Pretty astounding, right? yeah. So, so, that's, so, so how is this possible that white people think that they've been racially discriminated against? So these four guys all talked about how they were qualified for jobs or promotions. They didn't get it precisely for that. And the reason that this story resonated for me is the title of the show was a quote from one of these men. And the quote was, a black woman stole my job. Sure. And then they, and so I just had to, I said to these guys, look, I have just one question for you. It's about the title. Actually, it's about one word in the title. I want to know about the word my. Where did you get the idea it's your job, right? That's what aggrieved entitlement sounds like. You have to believe that that is your job. So when you listen to the Tea Party saying we have to take our country back, right? Who's the we in that sentence? Who is the our in that, in that phrase, our country? Because let's face it, unless you are a Native American, every other person came here on a boat, whether they wanted to or not, right? <laughs> right? So, so when we say, so only Native Americans could say that. Sure, we should take absolutely. Our and that's, back, that's, right? that's not hyperbole. That's not like no, exaggeration. Actual. That's absolute truth. No, I, I, I often joke that white men in America are the beneficiaries of the greatest affirmative action program ever <laughs> in the history of the world, which is called the history of the world. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. So, oh my okay, God. so that's one, that's one anecdote that I think captures something. But let me give you an image, Samantha, because I think this is important if you want to develop some kind of empathy or compassion for these, these men. Um, it's an image that comes from uh, from Arlie Hochschild's book, Stranger in Their Own Land, Strangers in Their Own Land, which also tries to understand these guys. So imagine you are uh, the the guys I talked to. They were they believed themselves to be fine people, good people, good men. They worked every day. They pay their taxes. They you know, and they 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 made a bet, and the bet that they made was that they, just like their fathers and grandfathers, if they worked hard, saved their money, they could do two things. They could support a family by themselves. Their wives shouldn't have to work. And they could buy their own house. Sure. They've been standing in line, waiting their turn. 
And now there's all these other people cutting in front of them. Yeah. Sure. Right? There's black people, gay people, immigrants, women, sure. all these people cutting in front. So they go to the government and they like tug on the sleeve and they say, hey, this isn't fair. There's all these people cutting in front of us. And the government says, you know, the hell with you. Yeah. You know, get used to it. Yeah. So that's why they feel so ripped off, by, stiffed by the government. Because they feel like they've been doing everything. We've done everything you told us. Yes. And now we're getting to the shaft. Yeah. Now, I think they're right. I think they are getting the shaft. I think that that white men in America, you know, have been screwed by this system. But do you seriously think it's LGBT people who outsource your job? Do you seriously think that it is people of color who gave you those predatory loans? Do you seriously think that it's feminist women who who, who <laughs> organize climate change? <laughs> you know, of course not. Yeah. So my feeling is they're right to be angry, but they're delivering their mail to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. There are rapacious banks and predatory co- companies all sure. over the place who are ripping them off the same way that people of color are being I ripped know. off. Right? So it's then, like we're all victims of the same system. So it's like, how can you, yeah. So, but, so, but, you know. so my analysis yeah. of this is that Trump has ridden a wave of this kind of aggrieved entitlement. Mm-hmm. It's that populist it, movement. It, yeah. Populism, right? Yeah. Yeah. right? But populism, populism is an emotion. It's not a theory. It's not sure. an analysis, right? Sure. It's a, fear, a theory. It's a feeling we've been badly done by. There is a populism of the right, Italian fascism, the Tea Party, the Donald Trump guys. That's the populism of the right. That's what it looks like. But, you know, there's also a populism of the left. There's Spanish anarchism. There's Bruce Springsteen, white working class hero, a leftist. So what is the difference between leftist populism and right-wing populism? Race. Right-wing populism says, let's blame them. Yeah. And left-wing populism says, let's ally with them in coalition. Yeah. Sure. That is to say, left-wing populism sees class as more important than race. Yep. Right-wing populism sees race as more important than class. And to me, that is the, that is, to me, to my analysis, that is the story of America. The history of America is the denial of race. Right, the denial of racism. Sure. This, you know, to me, that the, the story of America is that class, that race became a proxy for class. So we didn't have to talk about uh, have to talk about it. Uh, denial, in that sense, is a, it's a temporary salve. Like if we deny, if we go back to the origins, as we said earlier, if we deny the genocide of what has happened to the indigenous people or the Native Americans, we can continue surviving, going on with their everyday lives. If we can deny the racism that's happening daily and that has created pedestals for certain persons like white angry men to have their pedestals, we don't. We can go on with our daily lives. And and, and, and we get to feel like we're victims too, so sure. we don't have to listen to you. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And our, our yeah. victimhood, because of our sense of entitlement, trumps your right. victimhood, right? And, and I think, I have to say, I think in some respects... The progressives play into this sure. by creating those hierarchies of oppression that end up not that in the guise of letting, enabling some people to speak silence others. Do you know what I mean? So we, so we on the left are constantly talking about who's more oppressed than whom, right? Right. So we're Olympics. fighting among ourselves, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And I think we play into that hand, right? Yeah. Uh, it seems to me. I mean, maybe maybe this is going to sound simplistic, but I always thought that just a, a, a sort of an offhand comment that Bernice Johnson Regan made, the founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock, she said that you don't go into coalition with people you agree with. 
You go into coalition with people you don't agree with about all kinds of things. But on this one thing, you agree. That's where you start. We're going to keep those differences right there. We're going we're gonna to acknowledge them. We're not going to pretend they don't exist. But here's where we agree. Let's start here. And that's one thing that I want to talk about because I, you know, in, in the epilogue of this book, you discuss how in order for to separate masculinity from aggrieved entitlement, there has to be a coming together of folks across. Because, I mean, really, this is a class problem, right? And so, I mean, what does it look like for us to actually come together? Yeah. Because one of the things that I struggle with is like, okay, you know, reading these, one of the things that I find fascinating about the way that you approach, the way that you talk about the people that, you, that you're that you interviewing is like, you really paint a picture for who they are and all of that. And I always picture myself, I'm like, as a black woman, like, I don't, I would never feel comfortable being able to go up to these people and have the conversations that you're having. And so as we come together as um, just, just different sectors, like, what does that actually look what could that actually look like? Well, first first of all, I want to say something to the you couldn't go up to these guys and have the conversations. What do you think? A Brooklyn Jewish boy? Is gonna, <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Fair. I, I wasn't, I, I mean, I was I, I mean, I, 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 in fact, sometimes I would open with, you know, like, I am your worst nightmare. I am yeah. a, I'm a Jewish leftist intellectual sociologist. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're going to talk to me. Yeah. But I would also say, and, and, and listeners could be, you know, might, might find this useful also. There's a, there was a, a, there's a woman, a friend of mine who's a, a filmmaker named Dia Khan, K-A-H-N, and she, I think, or K-H-A-N. K-H-A-N, yeah. yes. Dia, D-E-E-Y-A-H. She did a documentary about these guys. She started in Charlottesville, um, and she, she was interested in the guys um, – who are involved in sort of the alt right, and she came here to do an to do a documentary. She had done a documentary of ex jihadists, and she's wow. she's London based. Okay, and she is Muslim, Iranian, a woman, and she walks right up to these guys and starts talking to them on camera, and they open up to her. They eat. They invite her to their camps. They she starts talking to them, and 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 it may you know for whatever reason some of them kind of just warmed to her. She's a really lovely, outgoing person. I think one of the older guys kind of had a kind of parental, paternal kind of feeling toward her. But what I'm saying is, you'd be surprised mm -hmm. who will open up to you if you approach them and say, I am not judging you. Yeah. I'm not here to tell you you're bad or wrong. I'm here to try to understand you. Because, And this is what I said to these guys when I, when I approached them. There is no way I can understand your worldview coming from where I, I am. Yeah. I'm not here to convince you of mine, and I'm not going to be convinced by yours, but I do need to understand it. That's my job as a, as a researcher. Mm -hmm. I can't understand it just by reading. I got to talk to you guys. Yeah. And I will tell you that of those guys, you know, probably half of them said no. Yep. Okay. Fair. Yeah. You know, but I got enough to say yes that I felt like I got something that I understood. You know, I, I came to understand some things about them. Sure. Well, in that, with what Sam was saying, well, when you, the ones you were able to speak with and the ones you're able to have good conversations with and get to under, understand better, what is the commonality that we could all serve us better to unite? Whether it's to talk about masculinity, whether it's to talk about class, what do those commonalities look like? Well, uh, you know, I think, I, I think that we in the, 
progressive side of things often focus, rightly, on how far we have to go. Right, all the things that are mm. still problems mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. The you know the violence against women, the persistent racism, all of these sorts of things, mm-hmm. right? And I and and that's true. But every now and then, it helps if you want to understand what the, where these guys are coming from. It helps to turn around and look at how, how how far we've come and how fast. Yeah. These guys grew up thinking that their lives would look like their grandfather's. Sure. Um, if they were professionals, that their lives would look like Don Draper's, right? If they weren't professionals, that their lives would look like Andy Griffith's. The idea, so so they and, and that so changed dramatically, right? So they're sitting there going, "What just happened? Yeah. One minute we're we're in Maybury, and the next minute we're talking we're, we're talking about transgender bathrooms. Like, where did you know? Like, sure. I I don't have the bandwidth to, to figure this stuff out." So, of course, when you get confused, many, most of us sort Defensive. of retreat yeah. to some place that felt more, feels more secure. You step in quicksand, you step out. Yeah. So these people feel that the ground underneath them is shifting. Now, you can say, get over it. This is the new reality. And, and we could say that right here and, and be fine with that. But, yeah. but, it does, but, but, but at that moment, we lose them. Mm-hmm. That, at that moment, make America great again means something different to them than it does to us. And that's so, so, so to me, I mean, I feel like, you know, yes, it is be for in, in, in most of America, it is bewilderingly fast. And so I think these, that, that, that bewilderment, that distress, that feeling like we don't know the, we don't know the language, the signpost any longer. And, you know, this, you don't have to go too far to figure this out. Look at the Golden Globes. None of the men there said a word about Time's Up or Me Too. Not a word. Why? Because they're all scared to death. Yeah. Why? Not because they're bad, but because they don't want to say the wrong mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. They don't want to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's a good sign. I it agree. means that most men don't want to be jerks. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Okay, let's start there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a, a great thing. So we've been talking about, you know, the notion that, you know, Harvey Weinstein's and Matt Lauer's and all these people have come out, have, have been kind of persecuted for their actions, right? And, for most rightfully so. And um, I wonder, there's this notion that there are powerful guys, right? You talk a lot about this in the book. There are powerful guys who have kind of the bandwidth to be able to, like, have that type of power over someone else. Have that kind of tyrannical power almost. Exactly. Exactly. And then there are, like, the regular guys who are like, I'm not powerful. What are you talking about, privilege? (laughs) I'm not powerful. What are you talking about? Like, I go to work. I'm bossed around by my boss. I come home. I'm bossed around by my wife. I'm bossed around by my daughter. Like, what do you mean power? What do you mean, like, yeah. Well, there's there's two ways I would would respond to that. And uh, and I think it's important that we, you know, that we pay attention. You know, the celebrities are sort of, you know, obviously the most visible – platform to talk about the me too thing mm-hmm. but i think there's there's some there's something else in, in in this as well i think we have to take these men at their word that they don't feel powerful and that's because in our analysis of patriarchy we understand that patriarchy is not simply a system by which men dominate women it's also a system by which some men dominate other men so those men who don't feel powerful, they're right. Yep. But it's not like women have taken over. Sure. It's like some men have power over other men. So they do feel 
that they're that they're powerless. And all of the landscape of masculinity politics, I put that in quotation marks, um, uh, is 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 basically organized around that experience that men as a group are in power, but men don't feel powerful. Yeah. So you have the men's rights guys who I talk about in the book who say something like, you know how you don't feel powerful? You're right. Those feminist women, they have all the power <laughs> now. Let's go get it back. Yeah. Or you have the like the mythopoetic guys, the you know the ones who were chanting and drumming in the woods a, a decade or so ago, and they're and they're saying, you know, you know how, how you don't feel powerful? You're right. Let's go to the woods. We'll get to the power rituals, the power chant. Here's the power stick, the power drum. You know, and and it which struck me as kind of like you know uh, like the uppies uh in in the 80s wearing power ties and eating power breakfasts as if power could be a fashion accessory <laughs> you know so this so 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 my position on that as somebody who supports gender equality r- racial equality sexual equality is that the fact that most men don't feel powerful although men as a group have power over women is exactly where we have to start yep. all the power in the world at the at the aggregate level does not trickle down to individual men feeling powerful. So what so something is now also women don't feel powerful. They invented this movement called feminism to sort of try to figure that out. Yeah. So our, if once you don't feel powerful, once you acknowledge that, then maybe the way to move is to sort of ally with other groups that don't feel powerful and say how can we work together? Mm-hmm. So that's the position that I've taken. So I don't so it's not power I don't see power as a zero sum game here. I think um one of the, the I feel like that's a perfect parallel to kind of the classism, right? Cuz it's like we've got a perfect I mean I want to say hierarchy but I think it's a little bit more complex than that. We've got a perfect hierarchy or perfect kind of a, a picture of the way that we've created a class system in which we can fight one another like the Hunger Games, right? We're fighting all we're finding one another for this position that we'll never have while the people at the top get to eat. And this position of aggrieved entitlement that in a sense, you know, I mean, we're talking about angry white men here, but I could say people who are educated feel. I could say people who come from specific, you know, like. I'm an angry brown man. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> like it's like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the things that I said um you know, people people have asked me about you know, well, are you angry? And you know, and I'm yeah, of course I am. Yeah. Um, but I'm not. But I, I but I feel like I'm angry about what is also screwing everybody else. Right. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to go for as far as the Hunger Games. You know, I've I, just just saying this personally. I've always had a very very uncomfortable and ambivalent relationship to boxing, because I grew up in the era when all of the boxers were. African American men fighting each other for white people's sure. amusement, mm-hmm. and it was, and it, you know, it just re- it just felt too close to 19th century South to me. Um, on the other hand, I think Muhammad Ali was one of the greatest Americans to ever walk on our on the planet. So, so you know, so I, I've always had a kind of ambivalent relationship to it um, because because he was brilliant. Um, and and took stands that really cost him, uh, you know. So he's uh, he's always been somebody who I admired, um, and yet, you know, and the visceral I, I won't deny the sort of the visceral pleasure of the viewing, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, the ambivalence of like, oh God, what am I watching here? Yeah, you know. And if you don't have an ambivalent relationship to it, you're not thinking hard enough about right. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the complexities and like, of it all. Yeah. What's that? To the complexities of it all and how. Yeah. 
who am I the viewer? Who are they? What's the spectacle? It's also being kind of okay with the fact that there is going to be that ambivalence and it doesn't, we don't have to like shy away from it. We can just kind of be in the presence of that. And that's kind of how we're going to be able to coexist on any kind of level, really. I, I know it's 2018 in the United States of America. And, and I know that we have a president who, who is unable to think beyond um, well, I, I don't want to say black and white because that, but be, beyond any kind of the most simplistic kind of us them models. Yeah. But it strikes me as somebody who's a social scientist that the hallmark of adulthood is being able to understand and live with ambivalence, ambiguity. That is the hallmark of adulthood. It's not, it's always going to be some shade of gray. Right. And that is important for us to, to I mean, to acknowledge because that's where the excitement is. That's where the interesting thing it, 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 what's interesting, I think. Um, so, you know, so I, I mean, I, that's great. I, I think we have to embrace the amb- ambivalence. Ambivalence you're talking about is kind of like what we were mentioning earlier about um the quicksand, like you, a lot of adults, it seems like in this day, as if, if they if they find that ambivalence, they retreat to defensiveness right. and mm-hmm. retreat what is stability. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So with that in mind. Um, with the previous generation or the working class Joe, the average Joe, the Joe the plumber. Joe who, the plumber, right. When he engages with this and he feels uncomfortable and unsure, he retreats back to his safety net. Now, in your kind of TED in the TED talk, towards the end, you mentioned the idea of free and freedom. With that all that in mind, what do you prescribe Joe the plumber would gain from freedom? Or what does that kind of freedom from masculinity gain, Joe the plumber? What what does that even look like? Big question. Yeah. So, you know, I I, I find um, myself increasingly uncomfortable with the framing of you know toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. uh, healthy masculinity. Me too. So let me tell you what I would would say to Joe the plumber um, to bring him because I'm not interested to be I'm, I really am not interested in him becoming more like me. That is in him embracing my idea of masculinity. So I would say to Joe the plumber, what I said to the the cadets at West Point when I gave the sexual assault awareness lecture, you know, last October, I said, "What does it mean to be a good? What would it mean to be, to you?" That's a tough crowd. To, I yeah. Feel. Well, you know what? Uh, your, your listeners would know I'm pointing to the palm of my hand. <laughs> Here's why, because I said to them, "What does it mean to be a good man?" A good man. When oh, you wake yeah. up in the morning, you look in the mirror, what, what does that mean? And here's what they said. The, you know, this is West Point. Honor, integrity, yeah. duty, do the right thing, country, stand up for the little guy, protector, provider, responsible. That's what I heard from them. I yeah. said, okay, where did you learn that? And they said, I learned it everywhere. It's, it's our culture. It's the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's everything. I said, that's great. Now, I would say in parentheses to you, they've described what it means to be a good person. Right. However, they experience that as very gendered. They experience mm. that as what it means to be a good man. So I'll, I'll sit with that with them. Now I ask them, okay, you tell me if those same ideas come into your mind now when I say, man the F up, be a real man. Yeah. And they say, oh, no, no, that's different. Being a real man is like strong, tough, powerful, never suck it up, play through pain, never give an inch, win at all costs, get rich, get laid. I said, okay, where'd you learn that? And they said, my father, my coach, my guy friends, my older brother. Wow. So here's, so there's, there's three things I want to take from this. Number one, what we learned from them is that masculinity, being a real man, is a performance. 
and it's judged by other men. Number two, what I know is that every man listening to this podcast, every man I've ever met, will at some point be asked to betray his own values, his own ethics, in order to be a real man in the eyes of other men. He will be asked to not say something. He will be asked to pretend he doesn't see what he sees, that he doesn't know what he knows, that he didn't go, walk out of a meeting in which the president said something disgustingly racist and say, oh, I, 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 I must have been checking my messages at that moment. I didn't hear it. I don't recall. It, right, I don't recall. I mean, so, so my feeling is that, and, and so what I would say to Joe, Joe the Plumber, this is the third thing, is I would say I do not want you to live up to my ideas of masculinity. I want you to live up to yours. I want you to, uh, what can I do to support you so that you can live up to your ideals about what it means to be a good man? How do I support you so that you, I can run interference for you with other men who might say that you're not a real man, whatever? You see what I'm saying? So I, I feel like that framing helps me to speak to somebody like no, that. No, absolutely. And it's, it's about, we've talked about this in previous episodes in the last season about how a lot of this, especially masculinity, whether you want to call it toxic or whatever, any sort of masculinity is a performance. Yep. Mm. And whether we know it or not, a lot of us feel this conscionable uh, drive to perform it regularly especially maybe only when we're around other men that's right and uh, meeting some sort of benchmark or standard of what it means to be a man and if we fall short of that the guilt that we feel and the oppression that we are worried about exactly and so it's really poignant that you say that because i would have never thought that the goal being the freedom being for men is to be free to be yourself and yes. not perform any sort of level of masculinity for anybody else. Right. But that's to be, right. That's what freedom really means. To be, in you, tune be more authentically yourself. Sure. Right. No, that's, that's, that's very right. poignant. And I, yeah. I, and and the performance part. So so on the one hand, on the one hand, as you describe it, it's an opportunity, and the other way, I think it's a responsibility, because that performance aspect, if Billy Bush had said to Donald Trump. That is disgusting, not to mention illegal. If we withdraw our real man tacit support, it stops. I want to add one thing to that, because one thing that you pointed to about, I mean, I think the mask of masculinity, right, is why we're all here, basically everything that you just said. And I I, want to say that there is a performance, I think, in spaces with women as well, where women have to perform the mask of of femininity Mm. in a way that I feel, you know... Being like doing this podcast and doing all this research have, has made me more conscious of the way that I have to perform mass femininity, the way that I see other women perform ma- femininity for our benefit or for the benefit of other women and the f- benefit of men as well. So, and if the if patriarchy works, the male gaze determines your performance of femininity, That's so you're not so. free either. Exactly, exactly your point. You exactly. can't be authentically yourself because you have to constantly check your look in the mirror to see how other people are perceiving you. You know you have your new book coming out. Ooh, Healing from this hate. has been a great conversation. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, I'm I have so much more book. to yeah. talk to you about, but you know. Um, so yeah, so this new book, Healing from Hate, I have a weird obsession with like supremacy and I feel like your work has really helped me to kind of like feed that. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. Uh, let me say something about it because you know, at the end of Angry White Men, I was really feeling kind of 
of depressed. And then, I mean, well, I mean, I was trying to feel optimistic by saying to myself, well, but I was trying to feel like, like, okay, you know, my, my prediction, which I still sort of believe, but it's going to be a little bit longer than I thought, was that these kind of angry white men, they are going to become decreasingly numerous, but increasingly loud on the internet. Uh, well, maybe that's true, but it's mm-hmm. going to take a while longer. Yeah. So, so the new book is called Healing from Hate, and it's about how young men get into and get out of the, the violent extremist movements. I looked at four organizations that help them get out, one in Sweden called Exit, one in Germany also called Exit, mm. and one in the U.S. That was just, that's only a few years old called Life After Hate, mm. and, and then another group in London called Quilliam, which works with jihad, ex-jihadists to help them get out of the Islamist movement. So I have three groups of ex-neo-Nazi white supremacist skinheads and one group of ex-jihadists, you know, kind of mm-hmm. to see what was similar and what was different. And I have to say, you know, it, 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 it will strike you as ironic that this book about these guys who, you know, had swastika tattoos on their necks, who perform, you know, participated in neo-Nazi skinhead rallies, this is the most optimistic book I've ever written because it's about the hope that they can get out. If they get the right kind of support, if they have the right kind of organizations that can help them, mm-hmm. they can get out. They can heal from this. Yeah. I mean, these, these guys have suffered massive trauma. Many of them have, were abused as children. Many of them had you know, childhood issues, were bullied, whatever. I mean, and then many of them went on to commit unspeakable acts of violence themselves, were in prison. And yet they're whole, they're whole today. They're he, they're, they've healed from that in ways that enable them to go out and try to help others heal. What could be more that's hopeful amazing. than that? Yeah. Right? So, so, so that's what the book is about, is about uh, four, those four cases, the U.S., uh, Sweden, Germany, and, 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 and England. Um, and there's a profile of one of the members of each of these groups uh, that, that, that begins it. Um, and the good news for you all is that we're having an event um, to launch the book on February 27th here in New York City um, at Fordham Law School uh, at 7 o'clock. And what we will, I will talk about the book. There's a film being made uh, by a filmmaker about some of these guys that will oh, wow. show Very cool. um, that before it premieres at, 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 at um, Tribeca. Uh, wow. And, and, we're having a panel of three formers. Wow, that's really um, cool. Two guys who are in Life After Hate, and then the guy who's the head of Exit in Sweden, which is the, 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 the sort of the prototype of how to do this right. And, um, and then a couple of researchers as well. Uh, so it's going to be, uh, you know, so these guys will actually speak about their experiences as well. So it's going to be a really amazing event. Well, I was going to tell our listeners, like, me and Samantha are going to be there, so you should come. But yeah. now that we've heard that, don't come for us at all. <laughs> no, don't, don't even worry. It's going to be really oh interesting. Yeah, it sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, no, this is super exciting. Um, well, I, you know, I think one of the things that I want to say before we close out is I, I came here expecting, you know, you're like the godfather of masculinity studies. I was like, please just tell us what to do. Like, what is the solution? How can we end this, like, you know, these, like, toxic ways of beings around masculinity how we and like really what i got today was the the comfortability with ambivalence is really the only only yeah. thing that we can do but i want to i want to say one thing and i'm i'm not pushing back against what you just said Samantha but i want to want to underscore it when you say tell us what to do the answers to our dilemmas right now are not going to come from cisgender straight white men the, what straight cisgender straight white men can be doing is listening okay you're going to tell us what to do 
we've got to, we've been telling you what to do for a very long time and we have <laughs> fucked this up royally. Fair, so so my feel, my feeling is that the, and this is this is I I'm, I'm thinking about the me too moment also. What do men have to do around this? Listen to what women are saying with an open heart to realize the kind of pain and that, that they have suffered, the kind of anguish, the kind of career-altering experiences that they had doing this. To just let, let women talk for a moment. You know, say, and I would say the same thing to, to, to my white brothers and sisters about this. It, you know, we've got to hear what this still feels like. We cannot tell them that well, you know, that taking a knee—that that—that's—it's not the right time, mm-hmm. or you know, it's not the right time to talk about gun control after a mass shooting. Uh, and I feel like, okay, I have my calendar out. Could you tell me when the right time yes. might be? <laughs> you know, it, it, so I'm I, so I feel like you know, men who are listening, it's time for us to be listening. It's time for us to listen at, with an open heart, not defensively. Because we know that this alliance between women and men is vital to everybody's future. We're done Amazing. with the season. I season know. two just <laughs> began and ended. We're cool. Like, we don't have oh, anything no. else to say. No, no. Thank you, Dr. Kimball. That was that really was incredible. Good. Thank you for speaking to us about the book. We're excited about the new book, and we're yeah. excited about the event. Again, it's February 27th. 27th at, at Fordham Law School. Yes. Sure. We'll uh, post it on the Facebook. Great. Um, great to Yes. I mean, this has been masculinity. This is a, a tremendous way to start the new year. and we we're got just... incredible episodes coming up. and. A swath of really cool guests coming through, a diverse amount of guests. Uh, yeah. Not as great as Dr. Oh, I mean, I feel, yeah. Uh, you do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we're really excited about it. I hope you guys can listen. You can follow us on the uh, Twitter mas- at Masculinity Pod on, um, on Facebook Masculinity Podcast, always with a K. Um, we got some really cool messaging from people uh, throughout the off season. So if you want to send us a message, yes, please do. We're, I will be responding. I have not been super horrible at coaching people about how to talk to masculinity about their folks. So feel free to email us at all platforms. So we appreciate you guys listening. Yeah. And masculinitypodcast at whoistheo.com is our email. So feel free to hit us up on that as well. My name is Samantha Zessi. My name is Roy George Philip the First. And this has been Masculinity. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to Pretty Chris on the, uh, the ones and twos. <laughs>